Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. God, we are yours. God, would you do something in this room that's so remarkable that all of us just stand back at the end of it and say, Jesus showed up. God, we want to sit underneath the authority of your word knowing that we are not yet glorified. We've got so much work to do. There's so much sin and baggage we bring into this room. And so, God, would your word not return to you empty, but would accomplish that for which you sent it? Would it accomplish your purposes, God? Would it succeed? Would it bring conviction? Jesus, would your Holy Spirit be present here right now? Take the words that I speak from my mouth and sear them into the hearts of each and every listener. That's a work that only God can do, and that's what we're asking for today. We sit in front of the living God. We worship you. We love you. Use this offering that we send out to bless your church, to bless many in the city who are yet to hear the precious name of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I'm excited to dig into this text with you today. We've been studying the book of Romans. Uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know we're going verse by verse through the book of Romans. It has been a thrill. It's been a challenge for me as a pastor. Uh, and I think a challenge for us as a body as well. But we are taking a break over the Advent season to focus in on Advent. You know, Advent's a very important season for the life of a follower of Christ. Uh, and here's why. Uh, Advent means arrival. This is a season where we prepare our hearts intentionally to make sure that we don't just get caught up in the whole Christmas gimmicky thing and actually as Christians worship the Lord correctly. In the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, God's people were actually instructed by God's law to take intentional seasons throughout the year to stop from the busyness of life, to retreat with their family and with their community, and to reflect on the goodness of God in their life. This was part of their annual rhythm of what they did. And as followers of Christ in the New Testament, New Covenant Christians, this is part of our rhythm as well. Not out of law, like in the Old Testament, but out of a joyful surrender to the Lord that we know we need these rhythms. Because if we don't take intentional seasons like Lent and like Advent to prepare our hearts properly, sometimes a whole year can go by and we forget to look backwards and remember what God's done in our life. Now, we're going to be jumping into this theme that we have for Advent called Come, O Come. As you'll see, it's on the slide behind me up there. And this theme, Come, O Come, gets after this idea that all through the Old Testament, God's people waited, they waited with eager anticipation for the coming of Jesus Christ, for the coming of the Messiah. Every story that was ever told in the Old Testament echoed, it reverberated with this kind of undertone of when is the Messiah going to come? When is the one who will redeem and transform all things going to finally arrive? In Matthew chapter 1, what we're going to dig into over the next four weeks, frankly, this is a passage that I've never seen or heard or known of a church breaking this chapter into four sermons. I've never seen this done. And that makes me so excited to be the trailblazer. If you know me, I like being the first to do something. So we're going to go slowly through this. And it's a list of names. And my guess is many of you, when you get to lists in the Bible, one of the first things you do is you skip to the next chapter. Just turn the page. Looks like chapter two's got some meat in it so we can get going there. But what I want to do is I want to take some intentional time to slow down and look at chapter one. Chapter one is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's pretty remarkable. 
And what happens when you skip over lists like this is that you miss the treasures of what's found within the list. This genealogy has some real treasures inside of it that I want to help us see and expose today. Let's just think from a high level. Matthew, the book of Matthew. This is a, a New Testament author, a, one of the best friends of Jesus, writing a first-hand account of the life of Jesus. That's what Matthew is. So if ever you want to know, is there any eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus? Matthew. He was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, and he wrote an eyewitness account of it. And he starts with this genealogy. Now, what's with the genealogy? Why is that important? Well, there's a few reasons. Number one, number one, the genealogy in the beginning of Matthew shows that Jesus Christ had a legitimate claim to be the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. You see, there were these prophecies that had to be fulfilled. He had to be a child of Abraham, so Jewish descent, through the tribe of Judah, which means one of his ancestors had to be Judah. He had to be a descendant of King David, so he had to trace his lineage back to King David. Jesus met all those requirements. If he had not met those requirements, he would not have been able to make a legitimate claim to be the Messiah, but he did. And so Matthew begins the gospel by actually showing us this. Secondly, it was to tell a story. It, this genealogy shows us how Jesus ends up being the centerpiece of human history. Every story that ever took place in the Old Testament that we read about people's lives and all they went through and the trials they went through, every one of it pointed forward towards Jesus as the Messiah who would fulfill all the lost longings that were in those stories. And then after Jesus, every story looks back to how Jesus transforms what's happened since then. This fits Jesus at the center of human history. Now, for us today, we're going to go through verse 6, and this is a really fascinating few verses here for a number of reasons. First of all, a genealogy in the first century, when you were putting together genealogy, it was a bit of like bragging rights, right? If you were going to, this would be like your resume. You go around and you want to make a claim to something, I'm, I'm the son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so? And this is how you'd go around, and this was your bragging rights wherever you went. This could get you jobs. This could lose you jobs, depending on who is in your family tree. Interestingly, in this genealogy, rather than only highlight the really powerful people that you want to highlight, like the people who are the A-plus superstars in the genealogies, that's who normally would get highlighted. This one highlights a lot of people with a lot of scandal in their name. This highlights a lot of people who come from a lot of brokenness. Particularly in this first few, these first few verses, Interestingly, Matthew includes four women in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, it's five overall. Mary will be included at the very end, but, but four women in the first five verses. Now, just so you know, that's unheard of in genealogies. And if it wasn't unheard of, at least it would be like the most remarkable women. Now, in Jewish history, in rabbinic tradition, there are four women that are kind of renowned as the four most remarkable women. They always come up in rabbinic liter literature. It's Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and who's the fourth one? Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Those are the four who normally always come up, but those aren't the four that's listed. It's a very peculiar characteristic of the genealogy. He chooses four other women. Let me give you a few reasons why before we even dig in. First, the four women he highlights are all from the nations. There's one Moabite, one Hittite, and two Canaanites. 
Now that's fascinating. Matthew begins his gospel showing, weaving into the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, four women who came from the nations. And the very last thing that happens in the gospel of Matthew is the Great Commission, the that Jesus then sends them back out to the nations. One of the things I love doing at this church is celebrating that we are a multi-ethnic church, that we come from a lot of different ethnicities, and we value that here in this church. And it's not just because one or two verses kind of fit that idea. The whole of the Bible reflects the reality that God's people are a multi-ethnic covenant people coming from different places. And we see it right there in the genealogy of Jesus. His bloodline was true, Jewish, right through Abraham's line. But woven in there are these women who come from these different backgrounds. Really fascinating. Secondly, each of the four women listed here are associated with some kind of scandal. It's a very interesting characteristic of this genealogy. Why is that? Why would Matthew go out of his way to highlight four women particularly, but all the men in this list have scandal associated with them, but when he's choosing the four to include, to include such brokenness and hardship in the genealogy of Jesus? You know, I want to just speak to our women for a quick moment. Women, I'm so proud of the women in this church. You guys lead incredibly. The way that you serve Many of the ministries we have are, are, frankly, to be honest with you, led by many of the women in this church. We uh, have a lot of men who serve. I'm so grateful. But when I think, like, when I put a class on in this church, when I'm teaching on theology and trying to equip you for the work of the ministry, oftentimes we'll have about 17 women show up and maybe five or six guys. And, and it's just a testament. Men, that's a challenge to you. You should be leading the way. I mean, if I could just speak to the men, you should be the first to sign up for that stuff. But also, women, it's, you guys are incredible. When I think of the work you've done serving across the place, serving my own family, women, you step up incredibly. And in Jesus' story, there are highlighted these four women that have very unique and remarkable stories that I think will speak to a lot of us in this room today, to our women particularly, but also to our men if we're listening closely. So let's jump in. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now there were four women in there, and what I'd like to do for the rest of this message is go through each of their stories, those four women's stories, and share with you how each of them point powerfully to the life of Jesus. The first woman we come across in that genealogy is a woman by the name of Tamar. Tamar. Now, I've nicknamed for today's message Tamar, Tamar the Forgotten. Tamar the Forgotten. Her story is a troubling one on a number of levels, both on account of what was done to her and on account of what she did. But as we think of what Tam who Tamar is, Tamar was forgotten. We meet Tamar in Genesis uh, chapter 38. Uh, Tamar was 
to be married to one of Judah's sons. Now, there were 12 tribes of Israel, 12 sons of Israel. One of them was named Judah. Judah had a handful of sons. And in those days and age, you didn't get married like we get married now. Your families kind of made decisions for you, and they would say who you're going to get married to. And Judah picked out this young woman, Tamar, to marry his son, Ur. Now, interestingly, what we find out right away about Ur, right after he marries Tamar, is that this was a very evil and wicked man. In fact, he was so evil and so wicked, we don't know particularly what was his evil wickedness, but we know he was wicked because the Lord decided as a result of his wickedness, he was going to take Ur's life right away. And so Ur passed away. And, and Tamar was left as a widow. Now, just put yourself in her shoes for just a moment, Tamar. Here's Tamar. She's been forcefully entered into this marriage with an extremely wicked and vile man. Now, if you can just imagine that for just a moment. And then he passes away. Now, in those day and age, there was a law. God had a good law in place for a situation like that because it was very dangerous to be a widow in that day and age back then for a number of reasons. One, women did not have the opportunities to make money the same way men did, and so they had a hard time actually making an income and having enough money to survive. But secondly, it wasn't just like a widow could go back to their parents' place because as their parents got older, remember, people didn't live as long back then, so as their parents got older, if their parents passed away, a widow would be left all on her own. If she didn't have any children to take care of her or a husband to take care of her, she literally would not have many opportunities to survive. And so God made a law for God's people to make sure that never happened to a woman. See, women were always treasured in God's community. To make sure that never happened, if a, if a husband died, a brother of that husband who died could impregnate the woman to keep the family line going and to make sure a child would be born that would carry the, the dead father's name, but also that the woman would have someone to provide for her as that child got older so she wouldn't be left on her own. Well, Ur, the wicked man, the wicked husband, had a brother named Onan. But it turns out Onan was also a wicked man, so wicked that he decided not to follow through on his responsibilities to care for Tamar. Once again, she was forgotten, just left. Onan refused to pick up his responsibilities to care for this precious woman, and he refused to carry through. The Lord took his life. That's how evil this man was, just like his brother. Well, Judah sees two of his sons have died, and his daughter-in-law is standing there, and, and he sends her back to her parents' place. Keep in mind what I just told you. That's essentially a death sentence. She has no way to provide for herself once her parents die. And, and Judah makes the excuse that he wants to wait until his youngest son is old enough to carry through on the responsibilities. But that's, that's a lie. We actually see that in Genesis 38, verse 11. We read this. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my youngest son, grows up. And then we get this insight into Judah's heart. For he feared that he would die like his brother's. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah discards Tamar. He doesn't want to lose his son. He knows the responsibility God's given him, but he just kind of casts her aside. Go back home. You'll figure life out. Well, Tamar had this interesting secret that she knew about Judah. He had a thing for prostitutes. She had been around him enough that she knew that this was a man who would cave in to the opportunity to enter into a relationship with a prostitute. One day, she gets word that Judah was leaving his house and going up to the city of Timnah with a couple of his buddies who were sheep shearers. 
They go up to Timnah, and Tamar, recognizing the hard spot she's in, she's in between a rock and a hard place, she's been forgotten, and she's in a dangerous spot. She takes matters into her own hands and does something very ungodly. She poses as a prostitute at the city gates of Timnah, knowing that Judah will purchase her time. And that's exactly what Judah does. Judah comes, her father-in-law, comes and purchases her time, enters into this quick relationship with her, and then leaves. And he leaves behind his staff with her. Well, Tamar goes back home and finds out that she's pregnant. She's pregnant with Judah's child. This is a very dangerous situation to be. That could get a woman in that day and age killed if she was found to be pregnant without husband. Well, Tamar begins to show, and Judah gets word that Tamar's pregnant, and the first thing he does is he begins to point the finger at her. Keep in mind, he's already forgotten her, and now he's just accusing her. How dare you, right? Judah's, I'm the one who put you in that situation, but how, you, how dare you do anything? And Tamar brings forth the staff and says, whoever owns this staff is the one who's responsible for the child in my belly. And immediately Judah realizes the wrong that he has done. And we read this of Judah in, Judah, in Genesis 38, 26. Then Judah identified them and said, she is, identified the staff and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. You know, it's interesting. These are the kind of stories that show up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Not quite uh, church stuff, right? You, you don't think this is going to show up in the King of Kings genealogy, but Matthew made sure we remember Tamar was part of his story. It's part of who made Jesus. This woman's story is part of the story that led to the birth of the Messiah. In her story, we see the story of so many women in this church and throughout history. Fighters, survivors, imperfect and sinful. See, this is incredible. Here's this woman who's been let down by the men in her life. The men are supposed to lift up. See, is precious. See, is a treasure. But they haven't done that. And now there's a woman in a place where she's got to make some decisions of how she's going to behave. And she makes some terrible decisions. She makes some sinful decisions. But if you look at where this originated from, you see that it was a group of men who put her in a spot where she didn't know what she was supposed to do. She's fighting for her life. We look back on tomorrow. We forget about all the men that, that, that forgot about her. We just remember her sin. What about Judah? What about the sons that were so wicked that the Lord took their life? There's so many women that are forgotten. There's so many women that have men not lift them up. And what I want to say to you in this church right now is if that's your story, if you're a woman in here right now and you come from a story like Tamar where you've been forgotten in some way or you've had men not lift you up as precious, I want you to meet Jesus. See, Jesus is the greater groom. He's the greater groom who looks in on followers of Christ as their bride, and he gives their life for them. He's not like Ur. He's not like Onan. He's not like Judah. He's not like all the men who end up finding their way in this story. All the men in Jesus' lineage make this same mistake. They keep making the same mistake, and the women are the women that suffer because of it, not Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, the story gets rewritten. Jesus gives his life to lift up his bride. He serves her. He sheds his blood for her. He sees what she can become, and he says, I'm giving everything to lift you up as precious. I give it all to you. That's what Jesus offers you. Whatever your story is when you come into this place, if you've been treated a little bit like Tamar, and you've had to make decisions that you look back on and you go, that, that was not the best decision, but I was in a hard spot. I want you to meet Jesus who changes that story.
He sees you where you are, he transforms you, and then he writes you something new, and it's good. It's good. The second woman we meet, Rahab. Rahab doesn't come from much a different background. Rahab, I've nicknamed her for today, Rahab the Courageous. We meet Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, the Israelites have been walking through the wilderness, wandering through the wilderness, and they come across the city of Jericho. Jericho was a military outpost. This was like a Fort Knox, or a fort where all the military men are training and, and, and getting ready for battle. This is a, a military place where the men are present. There would, have been, would not have been many families there, not many women at all. Frankly, most of the women that would have been there would have been prostitutes serving the men who were going to battle. That's what Jericho was. And Jericho was uniquely situated across the Jordan River, so it was the first city that the Israelites came across when they were entering into the Promised Land. Now, when we first meet Rahab, we learn one descriptor about her. She was a prostitute. Now, I want you to just imagine Rahab for a moment. Rahab's not a, a, a daughter of God at this point in her story. She's an outsider to the promises of God. She, she doesn't know anything about Yahweh, the God of the Bible. All she knows is her story. We don't know how long she's been in this line of work, but she's been in it long enough, experiencing the physical abuse, the emotional abuse, the verbal abuse, over and over and over and over again. And, and really, as a, as a woman with no hope, she's going through all of that with no hope of the God of the Bible. And then one day she hears a whisper pass through the city of Jericho. Here's this woman, this precious woman, and she hears this whisper, the people of God who serve a real God who actually changes lives are on the move and they're coming to Jericho. Now, she didn't know much about them, but maybe she heard some of the, the whispers coming through that they had escaped from Egypt and this God was not like other gods, that they, he wasn't just made of wood and stone, but there was actual power to his name. Real transformation was taking place. And she says, if that God's real, I need him. If that God's real, I need him. Whatever the cost, whatever it is, if it costs me my life, I'm going for that God because the place I'm in is only leading to more and more brokenness in the depth of my soul. I need that God. And so she does what no person in this room would have the courage to do. Rahab the courageous. She's walking through Jericho and she sees two men that don't look like everybody else. And she spots them right away. It wasn't just her eyes who spot them. The Spirit of God was working through this woman to spot these two spies to make sure they were kept safe. She recognizes these are two of those people I've heard about. She brings them into her home and she says, tell me everything about your God. Tell, I need to know everything. And they tell her about the God of the Bible. They tell her about all that God's done in their life. And hope is beginning to well up in this woman. This woman who only knew abuse and brokenness suddenly says, I'm in. This God can change my life. And she hides the spies. The king of Jericho finds out that those two men, see a few others had spotted these men. He sends word, find the spies. And the king of Jericho says, find them. And Rahab hides the men on the roof of the house underneath some flax on their roof so they can't be seen. And when no one's looking, she sneaks them out the back window. She says, please remember me when you come and attack this city. I believe in your God. Look at that faith. She's acting as a spy. That's immediate death if she gets caught in Jericho. She's risking everything for a glimmer of hope and change. The men look at her and say, here's what you're going to do. In this very interesting 
uh, thing that reminds us of the Passover. She says, gather your whole family in your house and then tie a scarlet thread, a scarlet ribbon on your window, a red ribbon on your window. And when we come by, just like in the Passover, when the Spirit of God passed over, when he saw the blood over the house, when we come in and we start destroying the city of Jericho, when we see that red ribbon over your window, we'll pass you by and we will spare everyone in your home. And that's exactly what happens. And Rahab finds her way into the story of the Messiah, coming from that background. Once again, Rahab's a surprising story to include in the family of the king of kings. You don't typically mark out a woman who came from a long history of prostitution to brag about in your family tree. But that's who Jesus included. Here's a woman who knew pain and emptiness. She knew how hard the world really was. And the only thing that she had to go on was a whisper that there was a God who saves. No matter your background, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you've been with, there is a God who redeems the story, who changes it. And she left all without having all the facts. All she had was a whisper and two men's testimony to tell them it was true. And she said, I'm all in. I know there is a God who saves. See, Jesus transforms your life. If he can get a hold of Rahab, I know he can get a hold of you too. Whatever your story is, whatever brokenness you came from, and whatever abuse has been given to you, I need you to meet Jesus who changes that story, who, who's able to take all the brokenness that happened to you and actually use it for good and perfect purposes and transform it for something you'd never be able to see in the moment. You never know it could get written for something like that. But once you meet Jesus, he transforms you. And look where Rahab ended up. You think she was thinking that when she was in her old days? She never would have dreamed we'd be talking about her today. That's what God does in your life. And you don't need to have all the answers, but you need to have a whisper of faith that says, I'm all in. I'm in. He alone can change me. The third woman we meet is Ruth. I love this woman's story. I named my oldest daughter Ruth. She's sitting right here in the front row. I love the story of Ruth. Ruth means loyal companion. Loyal companion. Ruth was a Moabite woman. Just like the first two women, they came from different nations, a Jerichite, a Canaanite, and a Moabite. Here we meet Ruth. And this is really interesting. The story starts in the city of Bethlehem. It's a family of God. Remember, the story of Christmas takes place in Bethlehem. That same city, we meet this woman of God, this loyal companion. And this family that was of the people of God, there was a famine in Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. That's what it means, bat lechem, house of bread. And there was literally no house in the house, of, there was no bread in the house of bread. There was a famine in Bethlehem. And the family goes up to Moab to try to find some food. Well, while they're there, the family does what the people of God weren't supposed to do. They intermarry with Moabites. The people of God were supposed to stay married only within their clan. But they went out and intermarried with Moabites. Ruth was one of those women. Well, what happens was Ruth's husband dies. He was a wicked man just like his brother and the father. And, and not only does Ruth's husband die, so now she's a widow, the brother dies, and then the father dies. And so Ruth, this new young widow, doesn't have anyone who can redeem the family around her. So it's not like Tamar where there was actually someone who could redeem her story. As far as she knows, there's no one. She's without hope. And Naomi is the mother. Naomi is this incredible woman who's just lost two sons and her husband. 
Naomi is so overcome with grief that she actually changes her name to bitterness. Any of you ever been in a, na- in a season where you just are so overcome by everything that's going on that you want to change your name? She changes her name to Mara, which means bitterness. It's a way in the text of saying this woman got to a place where she just gave up. She was done. She couldn't go on. She kind of just wanted it to be over. She looks at Ruth. She says, Ruth, go back to your family. I got nothing to offer you. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. It's probably still a famine there, but at least I might know one or two people there that might take care of me. Go home. And Ruth, the loyal companion, looks to Naomi, who's in this state of overwhelming bitterness, and in one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, says this to Naomi. Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth looks at Naomi and says, I'm with you. And she goes back, she gives up any hope she has, and she takes the form of a servant. She enters into Naomi's brokenness with her, and she moves back to Bethlehem. She's got nothing else to go on, but she's young, and the one thing she can do is she can go into the fields and glean food. In that day and age, God's people had to make sure there was no poverty in the land of Israel, and so they had a welfare system. And what would happen is, people who owned land could not harvest the edges of their field so that those who had fallen into poverty could go do a hard day's work and gather from the gleanings of the field and take food home for themselves. Naomi was too old to do that kind of work, but Ruth was young, and so she gives herself into this system. And it's a very dangerous system for a young woman, but in God's precious sovereignty. You know, God's always watching over your life. You know, even when you don't know, Ruth had no idea that God was watching like this. But God's sovereignty... She happens to stumble into Boaz's field. Boaz, the name means strength, Boaz. It means strength. He's a man of God, and he looks at Ruth, and it turns out he happens to be the one person who can redeem Ruth there. And he redeems Ruth. He marries her. He enters into this marriage with Ruth, and Boaz and Ruth become part of the family story of the person of Jesus. Ruth gives herself fully as a servant over to Naomi, not hoping for anything in return, but what she finds in return is that God has a greater plan for her life, and he wasn't done with her story. Some people in this room come into a room like this, and we think that a lot of our story has already been written. We've had hard stuff happen. You know, Ruth just lost her husband, lost her father. She came into a season of death. She's an immigrant. She's moving into a place that, frankly, was hostile to Moabites. The Jewish people looked very hostile to Moabites because they were a cursed people. They looked down on Moabites specifically. Coming into a small town. How many of you are from small towns? You know how fast word travels about people who aren't welcome there? Well, here she is, and she just trusts And God shows up. I want you to know there is a God who's like Ruth, an even greater companion. In the midst of your brokenness, when you feel like you can't go on, like you want to change your name from Naomi to Mara, because you're just saying, it's too hard, I don't know how to go forward, it's not working, I got nowhere to go. And if you're in this room today, look at Ruth and know Jesus' promise is the same and greater. 
because Jesus, Ruth had to limit it to death. Jesus actually goes through you, through, with you through death as well. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you in all of it. And when you don't have enough strength to go in and gather food for yourself, I'll be with you. I'll sovereignly find ways to make sure you're provided for. I'll never forget you. Jesus gave his life to actually serve his bride. Ruth points us towards Jesus. It points us to that we have a greater God who's looking over our story and he knows us and he hasn't forgotten us. Jesus is the greater loyal companion who never forgets his bride. He knows you. The brokenness you bring in here today, give it to Jesus. Finally, give it to Jesus. You can rest. I'm telling you, if you're trying to carry this, this on and you're, you're just thinking, I'm just going to get another day, another day, another day. The days pass and the years pass and you're worse than you were before and the whole time the invitation's there for you. Jesus is saying, I'll be your Ruth. I'll walk with you through it. Just lean on me. Let me go before you. Have faith in the God who says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The fourth woman we meet, amazing woman. Her name's Bathsheba. Bathsheba was a victim. If Tamar was forgotten, Ruth was a loyal com com companion, Rahab was courageous, Bathsheba was a victim. We meet Bathsheba in 2 Samuel, it's the story of David. David was a man after God's own heart. He was supposed to be the king of Israel. He was supposed to be the one that set the pace for men of God in Israel. He was the armor bearer. He was the one that everyone looked to him and they said, there's a godly man, that's who I'm gonna follow. But as we find out with a lot of the men in the list of Jesus' genealogy, he had a real moral failing. He, one day, didn't go out to battle with his men. He stayed home. Bathsheba was married to a man named Uriah. It was one of David's mightiest men, one of David's best friends. This was a guy they went out camping together with and looked under the stars together and went to battle with. David stayed home and Bathsheba was home. And one day David looked over at Bathsheba and thought she was a beautiful woman and called her into his bedroom. Now this is a dangerous situation because in this situation, Bathsheba has no power. While the word of what this is, and there are young ones in the room, so I'll avoid saying it right now. While the word of what is happening here is not specifically used in the text, David holds all the power in the relationship. All the power. She's got no power. What's she gonna say to the king? No, I'm not gonna do that. You wouldn't be able to do that to a king in that day. This is abuse of the worst kind. Bathsheba gets pregnant. Now, I want you to just think of this for a moment. Think of what's happening. Here's a man in a position of power that's supposed to be pointing people to God, but using that power to do tremendous evil to a woman. She gets pregnant when he finds out in order to cover up the sin. How many of you have ever sinned so badly you're just hoping no one finds out about it, and then something comes out? You know that feeling that happens when you're like... I can't believe I'm going to have to deal with this. David hits that moment when he realizes Bathsheba's pregnant. And well, he tries to cover it up rather than dealing with it. He has Uriah killed on the battlefield. It's to add insult to injury. Imagine Bathsheba. Now not only has this terrible evil happened to her, but now her husband has been killed and she's pregnant with a child. Listen to what Bathsheba's response is. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. That word lament, it's the Hebrew word for a deep crying, an anguish of soul. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done 
displeased the Lord. Bathsheba is a victim in the hands of a very powerful man. And I know in this church that there is a lot of victimhood that is very real. Women in this church I know and women across our city have been victims in many ways to very real crimes at the hands of men. When men were supposed to care, treasure, point towards godliness and lift up women and say, you are beautiful and precious and I see you as a treasure and I want to see you flourish, have had the opposite done to them. It's one of the reasons this story's in here. He didn't have to mention her, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. It didn't have to be in here. But we need to make sure we know that in the genealogy of the king of kings is this story. Because Jesus transforms this story too. He's able to take the hardest abuse, the worst abuse, whatever has been done to you in your life, whether it's something like this or whatever the abuse that you've endured in your life and the hardships that you have had done to you in your life that have made you a victim in other people's lives, Jesus looks over it and says, I saw it all. The very next chapter in 2 Samuel is God's just judgment on David because he was watching the whole time. He knew it all and David was held accountable for his actions. And everything that has ever been done in Jesus Christ will be made right and justly dealt with, if not in this life, then in the next. That is the hope that Jesus brings to each person who has been a victim at the hands of somebody else. Bathsheba's story is not unique. And we need to know that. I want to just say a word here as I bring us to the next part of this service and as I close this message out. This is Advent. And, you know, we're, we're beginning to kind of get into the weeds here and the details of what it means to celebrate Advent, the arrival. Without Advent, these stories don't have a good ending. See, see if these stories are where the story ends, then it, you've got a woman who's been terribly abused. You've got other women who have been totally forgotten. But if Advent is true, if the Messiah's come, if the one who sets all things right, who works his way into our hearts and transforms us from who we were to who we're becoming, who knows our whole story, saw it all and brings it to justice on the other side because of the cross where he shed his blood to give you life, if the Advent is true, the child who was born to die to give you life, if it's true, then your story has meaning, just like each of these stories have meaning. Then whatever was done to you or whatever mistakes you made in the past can be transformed by the king who came in the form of a child. That's what Advent is. Advent is the time where we pause for a moment and in reality look back on our life and say, I know who I am and what I've done and I know what's been done to me and I know the one who was born to redeem it. I'm putting everything in that. And if we don't slow down, if we don't stop for a second and say, that's Advent, it's not the lights, it's not the songs, it's Jesus born to change my life. Everything hinges on the arrival of that child. If we don't stop today and fall on our knees in worship and lift up holy hands and say, he gets it all, everything. If that doesn't happen the day before we kick Advent off, it's not going to happen, church. We're going to race through this and forget what Jesus has done for us. He changes your story. He's changed my story. And if you're in this room today and you don't yet know Jesus and you need a change story, he's going to do it today. He can do it today.
Park, this is the meaning of Advent. He takes your story and he writes something new that brings glory to God. He redeems it.